0: Payers are making it harder to access drugs. Patients are shouldering a larger share of costs while manufacturers sponsor programs to help. It's a vicious cycle that can't continue as it is. Welcome to another episode of the Prescription for Better Access podcast. As co-hosts Mark Hansen and Dr. Scott Howell ask their guests, what is their prescription for better access?
1: Welcome to episode 10. Uh, This one is empowering employers to improve patient access. Scott Howard, I don't see you on video, so what's going on?
0: Hey, Mark, we're having thunderstorms where I am, and we've lost our electrical power, and with it, our internet. So I'm patching in over my cell phone here and, and hope that it works out.
1: Well, no, it's great. So thank you for doing that. And before we get started, you know, I think it's important to have the disclaimer that the views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the co host and guest and do not necessarily reflect the views of our sponsors or any affiliates.
0: Well, excellent job as usual, Mark. And now that you've gotten (laughs) that out of the way, I'll just say once again, I'm really looking forward to today's episode. As you know, it's a continuation of our exploring sort of the foundational challenges in, in the healthcare system, including obviously patient access to drugs and how that's impacting all the stakeholders. You'll recall last episode, we heard from a practice manager in St. Louis who was quite the advocate for her patients, very impressive. And in this episode, we're going to learn about the employer plan sponsors, the people who are ultimately paying the majority of the bills and what their challenges are and what can be done to empower them to, quote, take on the beast. Our guest today is Matt Ort. He's the co-founder and chief healthcare officer of Self-Fund Health and author of Save Your Company, Don't Feed the Beast. Welcome, Matt.
2: Thanks, guys. Great to be with you here today.
1: I'm sure Matt is happy we uh, we already put in the first plug for the book.
2: It's always great.
1: <laughs> so Matt, if we could, I know you're you're new to healthcare, but do you mind just giving us a quick background and how you got to your career and what you're doing with Self-Fund Health?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think I have kind of a unique background in that so I'm a farm boy, so you'll usually find dirt under my fingernails still today. I have a lot of hobbies and so forth that are very active in restoring cars. But So I'm a very hands-on, boots-on-the-ground kind of person, but I spent most of my career, about 23 years, in leading human resources for companies. And the first two-thirds, if you will, of that career, I certainly did all the normal benefit healthcare stuff, going through the open enrollment meetings and so forth. But it was the last third of my career that really my eyes were opened. I took a role Uh, with a company called Merrill Steel in Schofield, Wisconsin and the VP of HR and got to know there were two brothers and a sister and got to know the sister who had a lot of unrealized passions for employees. She really had a heart for the employees and their families. And we got to looking at the healthcare and realized that the costs were going up in an unsustainable rate. We started graphing it. That's kind of my background. Early out of grad school, I was with uh, Toyota, so I learned a lot of root-cause problem-solving techniques and they had rooms full of graphs, so tracking everything, and so that kind of stuck with me. So we started tracking healthcare and realized we were going up 9 to 10% a year for five years, the previous five years before I had arrived, and that the owners were taking on all of that cost. They weren't passing on that cost to their employees. But she said, we can't continue to do this. Is there anything we could do with healthcare?" And so at that point, we kind of took the plane off and, and then we started building the plane. And that was about, right, that was 16. And we learned every day, every week, every month, and started implementing initiatives and found ourselves five, five and a half, six years later, saving about five and a half million dollars on the plan and having made it far better, many uh, free services to employees and their families. And that led to uh, uh, many awards coming in. It led to starting a healthcare best practice group, which is uh, up to a couple thousand people today, and traveling the state even recently, which then I had left Merrill Steel and started Self-Fund Health, as you mentioned, and uh, most recently the book. So really, Really, an unexpected journey from uh, someone who's been around healthcare a long time, but not a healthcare-focused person, if you will. But that is what I'm living today.
0: So, Matt, that that is a remarkable journey. I imagine for most or many employers, at least, in that kind of situation, trying to figure out how to deal with mounting healthcare costs. You know, a more usual approach might have been to, or an alternative approach, at least, to engage your broker engage your insurance company, maybe even bid out your insurance and see if there was someone else you could work with. Why did you and Merrill Steele decide to take it on so directly yourselves this way?
2: Yeah, and I, I had a broker alongside me for most of the way. And so we we did that, although I started learning about different practices and partnering with the DPC, the direct primary care clinic that we had on site. And the doctor was very is very innovative. And Dr. Alex Summers from Astia Health, and so, one thing I did find is we were in the first, say, one, two, three years of the journey. Is that the the broker was a good administrative partner and had really good technical knowledge, but I wasn't very strategic. And so the and almost kind of what we're seeing with many, which a majority of brokers today, kind of change averse. So what we see with the best practices of the companies that have succeeded in healthcare in Wisconsin. So there are six mature stories and several in progress. But we always see this person inside the company, this person that grabs the reins and says, let's go. And so, although I learned a lot of these things later, as I met those people afterward, that was what I did. And so then I had to kind of build the team and then and bring everybody along, if you will. But there was a lot of resistance to change along the way that I had to kind of push
1: through. And Matt, as you sort of used your background, as you said, and your experience, and you started to dive into this with what I'll call fresh eyes. I know you started to uncover some of the cost problems. What do you think was leading to some of these cost problems that, that that occur in healthcare?
2: Yeah, you bring up a great point. I think my, and they say new eyes, new ideas, right? But my fresh eyes really, I think, helped me. I, I knew enough to be dangerous at healthcare, but I didn't know, much of what the health what i would call healthcare experts know right and I'll and i'll frequently say even in meetings today that this person has forgotten more about healthcare than i'll ever know so i don't claim to be maybe the career-long healthcare expert but as we started breaking it down we started graphing there's some research that indicates today for instance on your question that only 27 percent of the dollars spent by employers and employees makes it to the person giving the care so that means there's a lot of money that's flowing around and, and maybe some non-value added processes or payments being made. And so we, we look to, to try to, I pulled from my lean background at Toyota and we look to try to, you know, kind of streamline the processes if we could.
0: Matt, any other major contributors? What, what kinds of spending were the, the big ticket items, you know, hospitals, doctors, drugs and so on?
2: right? Yeah, I think I, I can break it down maybe into two parts, what I call kind of an intentional problems and unintentional problems. But one of the things, as the joke goes, how do you pay less for healthcare? You actually have to pay less for healthcare. That's not my quote, but I'm not sure who coined that phrase. But we started looking around, and, and the first thing we did was plug in really high-quality primary care so that we could give the person programs, right? Treatment programs that could be followed up on of whether it be diabetes or whatever it may be. So we, we gave them kind of a home base and what we would call the heartbeat of the medical strategy. And then from there, through some innovation, we learned that this semi, at least in the Midwest, there's, a, there's often the, they drive these MRI machines or other imaging machines around in these semis and they go and they plug into a 480 at these hospitals, so they often don't have stationary equipment. But we learned that our clinic could contract, for instance, with that MRI company and that we could have that truck pull up to our front door. It's kind of funny, a big semi pulls in and we could get an MRI, say, for $600 by putting in our mm-hmm. own plug versus if that semi drives 15 minutes north to one of the hospital systems, that same MRI is five to 6,000, same truck. And so that was something that I used with employees. I would explain that and say, just by kind of wisely shopping for healthcare, we can get better prices. So that, in that case, I remember the first time that truck pulled up, I was sitting with the president and second generation owner, Roger Hinner, and we were sitting and of course it's a really big complex, you know, 40, 50 acres and so forth, big building, but a semi pulls up to your front door, you kind of noticed, and he's kind of leaning over and looking out the window. And I said, Roger, every time that semi pulls up, you save around forty five hundred to five thousand dollars out of your pocket, out of checks you're writing, and that we can give free healthcare to employees. And he and he smiled and he said, I like that. So that's kind of a neat example where we just kind of wisely shop for healthcare and then you can carry that on to orthopedics and you can carry that on to all sorts of specialties. And even today, which is pretty cutting edge, but we're even looking then at oncology options and cardiology options and where we could get a $40,000 surgery that would have been 160,000 or a, a $20,000 joint replacement that would have been 80,000. And so that's the same or better quality. So we, we really start to shop for healthcare as one of the key themes.
1: I think as a part of that key theme, you've, you, you put this into your book as well, right? Where you talk about it, it's called the employer healthcare success formula. Do you want to share a little bit more about that?
2: yeah the book is the kind of my latest adventure it's been kind of on my radar for about three years i had been kind of typing up pieces and i'd put it in a folder and then at some point before this past winter so roughly about just a little over a little over a year ago i had said you know i need to finish this book so i started carving out the weekends and evenings and my my family time was sacrificed but I said I need to finish this book, and my goal was to produce kind of a handbook. This journey that I've been on, or that I've been on for the last seven years or so, in trying to find this high-performing self-funded plan. There are a lot of pieces involved, there, are, and there are a lot of things that can kind of shut it down along the way. It could be that you, you know, you get don't get enough support from owners or CEOs or right or presidents. And that can shut it down. And, and managing the change process is something that maybe many wouldn't see in this. You'd say, "Well, we're change the way we do healthcare," but helping the employees and their families through that is probably the biggest reason it could fail. You could have a perfect strategy, but if people start getting frustrated and they're like, "I don't want to do this," you get enough of that, and you know, maybe you get enough pressure. Maybe even you lose your job. I know. Uh, I didn't encounter that kind of situation, but Michelle Golden, who led one of the success stories in Wisconsin from Chippewa Falls School, she actually told the board, she caught some heat. She saved over $10 million. But she told the board, she said, if this doesn't work, you can fire me. (laughs) And I said, I don't think I'm saying that. I'm not fond of that. But that's the kind of pressure that one can feel as you jump into that big of a change effort. So the book, it really is meant to go from start to finish. To talk about the fun stuff, to talk about the hard stuff, and some of the realities of healthcare, and to tell an employer, to teach an employer everything they would need to know to, to kind of do what I did and and some of the other employers in Wisconsin have done.
1: Scott, if I could just do a follow on on that because you mentioned the cost savings for the schools, what about for for Merrill Steel and and the results you saw the you know in terms of the before and then the after you implemented this employer strategy.
2: Yeah, we were about $5.5 million spend. Our stop loss was high because we were tapping into that too often. Our stop loss was over 700000 as part of that cost. So, in the increases, as I mentioned, were about 9 to 10% a year. So, we started graphing that and we started implementing. And we were saving approximately 20% per year. Now I did some of these things out of order. So about a million dollars. I did some of these things a little bit out of order as I was learning, I would do it a little differently today, but even like the third, between the third and the fourth year, we changed plan design which is really what helps with the steerage and gets people motivated to do things. So I think that I haven't seen the graphs of course, after I left, but I think if anything, we escalated that savings. So it's not uncommon for this strategy to produce 20 to even 30% or in sometimes 40%. It kind of depends on where you're starting, right? It depends on where you're starting. So we can, the best gauge is what's called that I think is called per employee per year. And that's employees on the plan. But I would say for a high performing private employer, if you're in the range of say nine to ten thousand, you're really you're really doing well. So that was and we were in the the mid nines when we were really gaining momentum.
0: And Matt, it sounds like a, a big part of the opportunity here is in shopping around and getting better deals. And and I and I hear you say that, you know, you pass on the benefit of that to the employee in terms of if they do that, they get it basically at low or no cost share. Is that right?
2: Yeah. So we want to incentivize, right? We want to incentivize and make it worth their while to shop. And so we kind of add this new column to the plan design where we can make it net free or no cost in some way or low cost or even incentivize them. But yeah, this is a win-win. So it wasn't just about, say, the company saving money. It was the employees as well.
0: Why do you think those kinds of better deals are possible in the marketplace? Wouldn't you think normally that a a big health insurer would be able to drive a better deal than an individual employer?
2: You would think so. And I think that's purported a lot that somehow the insurance companies have negotiated better deals. And I think that might be a myth. Everything that I see when it comes to claims cost is that those prices are not better, that the cash price is better, that... That an independent network can be just as competitive. So I think there's a lot of myths out there. There's a lot of there's a lot of hands in the cookie jar, and even if they are getting a better deal, then that money is going elsewhere and not necessarily saving the employer or employee any money in those claims.
0: How about the drug spending? How does that tie in here? How much of a part of the challenge is it, and how do you think about that?
2: Yeah, the drugs certainly have become a prominent area of healthcare cost, we see trends. When I I talked to the tenured CFO, for instance, at Meryl Steele, and he said, Matty said 20 plus years ago when I started, the drug spend was around 4% of our total cost. And today it's over 20%. So we see an increase in prescriptions. We see the drug industry has certainly grown in terms of more drugs available and more right for different conditions. So it's a big deal. And so as we as we start to try to get transparency and remove some of the prescript fees and so forth with PBM and drug spend that we can an employer can typically save twenty to thirty percent. Again, it depends on where you start, but it's not uncommon to see twenty to thirty percent reductions even in the first year. That can be one of the quick wins.
0: Could you give an example of how the shopping might work in the in the drug area, the drug spending area?
2: Yeah, and I'll admit first that you know pharmacy is not one of my areas of expertise. I'm a but I'm a hands-on person and I learn quickly, right? I'm I'm one of those guys if my car breaks or my washer breaks, I'll YouTube and go fix it myself. So I I learn quickly. But there are many who know more about pharmacy than I do. But I think I've had calls, for instance, you know, part of it is just the first step would be a transparent PBM. So I had a call, oh, I don't know, a year ago uh, that kind of stands out and an HR manager had called me and said Yeah. The employee came to me and they just wanted to make sure this is right because they said under this new PBM that the drug cost is $17 and they were paying like $277 before. And so I said, yeah, that's right. That's just how we're we're doing it. And so I think just one, the transparency and this making sure that the PBM is doing things right. You You can save money on cost. GoodRx always remains an option. You know i just helped a person with an epi pen last week that he said he was paying over 700 dollars on his fully insured plan last year and we're looking into our other options as well but you can find it on goodrx it looked like around 150 dollars and so i think just shopping so we don't have as many say shopping options for pharmacy we have explored some things that are that are debatable of whether they're sustainable and so forth and we don't we're not real heavy into that but things come up like international sourcing or patient assistance programs and you find employers kind of just scratching and clawing the ones who get this game scratching and clawing to do everything they can to try to just stay healthy as a business and keep the healthcare costs down and so for instance one would be humira right which is i think there's some biosimilars coming out you know through our cubans program but we had a case where we had a couple people on Humera and these were entry-level employees in the office. But maybe their salary was, say, twenty-five or thirty thousand. But they're on a hundred-thousand-dollar drug, which we want to support those people. But it just becomes kind of burdensome in the realities for an employer, and that now you're really paying this person one hundred and thirty thousand. We, as a self-insured employer, that gets challenging. So. We don't want to change those things, but we also have to stay competitive as a business. So those are some realities that employers are facing.
1: And if I could, Matt, you mentioned a transparent PBM, and in your book, you talk about there's, there's uh, kickbacks on their kickbacks, right? So you know, help us understand what a transparent PBM has, has brings to the table.
2: Yeah, I think just, you know, having a set price, you know, a set price for the, the, so pass through cost, and then maybe a a per transaction fee and trying to keep it as simple as that. We know that it's even more than, when I look at the chart, I had a PBM expert once show me, he said, this is, he drew it out kind of in this picture. This is where all the money flows. And honestly, I was half confused by it. But what I, what I took away is there's way too much money flowing around. There's per script fees being given to the brokers. There's all sorts of money flying around that just isn't really adding any value. And The rebates then, they say, well, we give 100% of rebates, but by the way, we've changed the definition of rebates. And so really it means you're getting 50% of rebates because we take an admin fee out of this. I had a, a PBM share with me recently that he talked to the broker and the broker wanted more per script fee. And he said, actually, that's more than we make as the PBM, and we're doing all the work. And so just all sorts of things like that. So just making sure it's fair. One of the things, as I share in the last chapter, kind of the closing of the book, as I'm sure you've seen, is that we're looking for win-win situations. We're not looking to take advantage, right? And re- and this win-lose right now, the industry wins, the employers lose, employees lose. We're not looking, I'm not looking to flip that. I'm not in looking, in, in, I'm not in revenge mode and, and so forth. I wanna find a win for the provider and a win for all the administrators and a win for the employers because a win-win is the only thing that sustains. Shared wins sustain and everything else does not but right now we have a very imbalanced situation.
1: And as a follow up, let's talk about the win for the patient. So we're obviously this is our podcast is all about, you know, patient access to to medication. So help us understand how is this improving the patient access and whether it's lowering copays, eliminating prior auth or helping them get on therapy faster? Like how's this really helping the patients?
2: There's one example, and I think we'll do more and more of this that stands out. So this would fall on the health plan cost and not on the pharmacy cost, but it's for an infused drug for a J-code drug. So we had a, a patient early this year that had Crohn's disease and then TiVo was the drug. When they learned about our plan, the patient had reached out to me. And so I had some conversations with this and and so we looked into it and we found that for these infusions that the hospital uh, was going to charge approximately 25,000, it was a little more, but 25,000 per infusion. And as we looked into it further and the patient had not received any infusions yet, the patient was waiting two to three months for treatment suffering with Crohn's disease. So we found an independent rheumatology provider, and it was actually ironically in the same building as the one the patient was waiting on. And we were able to source the drug. We didn't even have to white bag or go through the PBM side, but office was able to source the drug. And the the real drug cost was around 50, something like 5,500 as opposed to 25,000. So we realized that that drug is being marked up in that case five times. And then we were able to give that patient care within two to three days. And so that patient that was waiting and suffering because it was unavailable for overpriced care, we were able to serve that patient and put her on this, this plan and get her the right infusions on the right schedule. And we also did a spreadsheet after that and we found that that's maybe not as visible, but we found that some drugs are marked up 50 times or hundred times if they're real low cost. And then of course a high cost drug is marked up three to five times because it's so high, but that is a practice from hospitals to try to stay afloat, to try to stay in the black, but it's a lose for the buyer and it's a lose for the patient.
0: That's a powerful example, Matt, and obviously a direct benefit to the patient to be able to get that with no copay. But do you ever have patients say, well, no, I want to stick with, I understand what you're saying, but I want to stick with what my doctor recommended or what my hospital recommended or whatever?
2: It does happen. Like in that case, I forgot to mention too, if, if the patient would have taken the hospital system path she would have had to have paid eight thousand. Would have hit her max out of pocket under this other side. Since the plan saved so much, we got a tour for no cost. I think you guys probably know that, but it's important to say. But yeah, certainly, I've on the pharmacy side. We've had pretty good success. Of course, no cost or free tends to get attention, but we do have cases where, say, someone is scheduled for imaging, such as an MRI, and they're scheduled at the hospital, and maybe they didn't go through the DPC, so they're they're on this other path. They're on this old school path. And maybe we'll text or reach out phone call and say, you know, we have a, a brand new GE machine a few miles from you. We can give you this MRI at no cost. And I think there's kind of this trust thing. It's like, what is this about? How can you do that? And who can do that? And so sometimes they'll just kind of say no. And I it kind of it's really hard to listen to when you know what I know. And then I realize that patient's gonna go and get a bill for four or five thousand. Maybe their deductible is five thousand. The interesting thing about that scenario is the plan didn't really get burned yet, the patient got burned, right? The patient's going to have to spend their hard earned money now. So I, we take it patiently, we never pressure anyone into anything. But what I do realize is I get a chance to talk to that patient in the future, maybe it's in an enrollment meeting, and we continue to educate on how this plan works and how these options work. I wonder if the next time after that patient got that $5,000 bill, the next time they might listen to that free option. So I guess it's that patient's choice. But I would think the second time they would be more open-minded because that's a lot of money. And some of these earners aren't high-income earners. These are low-income earners that do not have that kind of money.
1: I mean, it's amazing what you're doing. And those are great examples. So tell us about your current company. Like, What are you focused on there with Self-Fund Health?
2: We've taken the the strategy. So there's about, if you kind of break it down and by partners and pieces and components and actions, there's about 35 or so pieces in this full strategy that I implemented at Merrill Steel. And then as I met these other five mature stories, I dug in and researched how they're doing it. And they're taking a very similar approach. And I came up with this best practice high-performing self-funded plan, this packaged plan, right? If we go out and if an employer wants to buy a fully insured plan, it's pretty easy. The network's already established and and the processing of medical claims and the processing of pharmacy claims and utilization management of pre-authorizations and so forth, all of that's packaged. And they just say, here's your premium, here's your price, right? The employer doesn't have to assemble this complex puzzle but nothing really exists on the self-funded side. So on the self-funded side, we've taken this best practice and we've said, this is how you actually spend less for healthcare. This is how you manage your medical spend. We've packaged it all together and we understand how part A interacts with part B and part C and how all this fits together in a really coherent narrative of a strategy. And so we do the heavy lifting for employers. So we are a a high performing self-funded plan which really is almost a new, uh, a new narrative or a new language for employers because they're so used to having to build it themselves on the self-funded side.
1: And is this able to help companies that have multiple locations or remote workers or others? I know that your Merrill Steele had was more concentrated
2: yeah we had really we were fortunate that we just had two locations one in missouri and so it, this approach does require some build out in other states so right now we're focused on wisconsin and we can support if they have other locations we can support that but we're we're focusing on companies that are headquartered here it's just the same you know if we want to find so if, if you had say a location as we did in missouri we in springfield missouri merrill steel did so we ended up putting an on-site, but it could have been a near site as well. So get DPC care, right? Get the good primary care. And then DPCs, by the way, they know of all these alternatives and these referrals, and they know where the best place is to shop for MRIs and surgeries, et cetera. And it does require some build out and at least a backup network because we're never looking to eliminate hospital systems. We're just looking to, for the best deal. If it happens to even be at the hospital system, that's fine too, but really just opening up all those shopping options. So we, we built that in Schofield and then we built that in Springfield, Missouri, and it really can be built anywhere, but it does, it's not one of those just sign on the dotted line and it's done is where it does take that, that construction, which can be done in a month or two. It's not a huge effort. But yeah, if a company had fifty locations across the nation, you would have to look at a significant implementation plan for that. But most companies aren't, of course, that big.
0: And Matt, back on the drug spending part of it, I think I heard you say, and I just want to be sure that your program does take advantage of, I'll say, manufacturer copay assistance, and, and that includes the, the accumulator and maximizer kinds of programs. We know those are quite common. We've obviously we've talked to other guests and and it's well known in the industry how much those things have grown but i just wanted to be sure we were clear about that was that right
2: yeah we haven't really i don't i don't think we're really dialed in yet i think we will be soon but really on the copay trying to right trying to not play games i'm really big honestly on not playing games i think games are trust bakers right and so if we're going to work together i would just say please just be straight with me no games we try to play that line. So we haven't done much on the copay side. If a member is eligible for a patient assistance program, we have tried to facilitate that in a few cases. And so that's something that seems to be fading. We see the manufacturers kind of pushing back on that. That's some areas we're not putting a lot of energy, but ultimately, right, is if you're representing the employer and actively managing their plan, you're doing what's available and trying to also keep it straight as well.
0: Do you worry that manufacturers, because of of these kinds of activities, might ever have to limit or even stop some of the programs?
2: I would probably foresee them, and I think they already are, is what I'm seeing in that the the PAP programs or assistance programs, where they're pushing back and saying we're not, you know, they're limiting approval and access to those, especially for employer plans. But I think it comes back to everybody just doing kind of the golden rule i don't want to sound over simplistic right but treat others how you want to be treated so if the manufacturers put on fair prices and the pbms do things transparently then employers would have no need to try to play any game back and so that's the way i would prefer it i'm not a fan of games because it breaks trust games break trust right
1: matt we have listeners who sort of run the gamut of all the different stakeholders including i'm based in in bethesda maryland outside of washington dc so what do you think some of the major stakeholders could potentially do to to help employers and and what potentially could the, even the government do to help employers
2: on the government question you know we all have our different views my view and request for government would be to just make sure there's no antitrust violations and no monopolies and to make sure that the free market is truly opened up we see a lot of lobbying going on i have a graph in the book i think i forget the number but it was hundreds of millions i want to say 7 but just a ton of money. And I guess that's the way our our government was designed because there's lobbyists on both sides. But we see that this wealth is really being utilized to make the laws in their favor and in favor of these huge carriers. And that tends to then, now you have a win-lose. So you're like creating a win-lose kind of situation, which isn't sustainable. So uh, if I ever talk to legislators, I've testified in front of the Senate, and my ask for them is to just make the playing field level and to make it fair and to, and to support this free market concept, which I promote heavily in the book, that a free market, uh, as long as there's no monopolies or games, works pretty well. The sellers have to compete in a good way for quality and cost and accessibility, and the buyers get good choice. But in, in our current healthcare environment, those things do not exist. Those things are greatly suppressed.
0: Well, congratulations on the success of your approach. How generalizable do you think it could be to other areas, Matt? And do you think it's sustainable over time as well? Or will something else be needed?
2: I think as long as that we continue to open up the free market more, I say that this plan or this approach, this strategy gets stronger over time. And it gets stronger over time really for two reasons. One is that the employees on the plan get them to get comfortable with this shopping concept and they get used to it and they like it and they start to ask, are there any no-cost services? Available for this procedure. I need the doctor said I need this procedure and we say yes or no and we say how close and So they start to get used to it and they start to like it and they start to save money The other side is that the providers we start to create this healthy seller environment right now. It tends to be more independence Uh, You see imaging centers there's plenty of those and orthopedics where they share their bundled price they give a clear price and Ultimately, I would like to see the hospitals pressured into doing the same. I am certainly not anti-hospital or anti-anyone, that we're just for the values of free market shopping. But I would love... And even in Missouri, I was working with a hospital back with Merrill Steele that was actually giving me bundle prices. It, it's in the book. It wasn't easy, but just as Keith Smith and others have done in Oklahoma. The hospitals snubbed him at first, but as he gained market share and as he gained presence, now he has all sorts of partnerships with Oklahoma Heart and others. And so we see this real free market environment where they're winning too, and they're actually winning too. We see a surgery center of Oklahoma or Solstice Health in Milwaukee, or a Wellbridge in Indianapolis. We see these surgery centers offer a, a very low competitive price, and guess what? The surgeons in those places make more than they do in the hospital which is really interesting. So the surgeons are more motivated and you can get better surgeons. So it's not a lose for them, but it's a win for the patient for sure. And it's really this opening up of the free market.
1: Great, Matt, if you don't mind, I would like to wrap up. We ask all of our guests, you know, the name of the podcast, obviously is Prescription for Better Access. So if you could spend a minute on, and by the way, I know in your book, you, you do a great job talking about the future of healthcare and all different components. So help us understand, what is your prescription for better health? Or for better access, I'm sorry, prescription for better access.
2: We can dream a little bit, right? And I think we should dream because we're here anyway and we're all working anyway. We might as well do something special. But I think, you know, the, the DPC is really a growing movement in Wisconsin and I think many states. So this independent primary care, as we juxtapose that next to the hospital system primary care, I heard in Madison a true story, and I can't say this is the norm, but I heard a patient had called. And they said, we can get you in in August, in August for a primary care. But then they clarified and they said, August of 24. And I'm like, really? It sounds like we're making this stuff up. So I think with a DPC, you can get in. To, and I don't think that's the norm, but it's it was a real story. And I've heard certainly weeks or months to get in for a primary care condition. With a DPC, it's same or next day. So you can go as many times as you want. You can call them on their cell typically. You can go a virtual meeting. But you can get in to see your doctor is that one of them jokes the doctor will see you now as in the other side is not now it's it's far later so i think that accessibility is really key because when you need care you need care and so if the cost is too high or if the care is not available then you tend to avoid care and when one tends to avoid care maybe it's a sore knee maybe it's a, a lump in, that turns into a big tumor or something and and so forth the more we delay care i think the worse we're off but people are delaying care because their deductibles are too high and all that money is coming out of their pocket that they don't have in many cases so i think this model really supports accessibility we're all about we're not about avoiding care but we're all about taking care of patients and helping them get ahead of their conditions before they become really serious where then the plan loses as well so we're trying to create this win-win win-win early versus this Lose, lose later on.
0: Well, very well said, Matt. And thank you so much for joining us today and teaching us about your approach to to all these matters. Thank you.
1: I just have one more question, Matt. How are the Packers going to do this fall?
2: Well, we're gonna we're gonna bring the love. I'll tell you that we're gonna bring. Are you gonna
1: bring the love? (laughs) There you go. (laughs) I like that. Time for a new chapter for Packers football. So, well, that's great. No, and Matt, thank you as well. Scott, you want me to go first on some, some lessons learned? Yeah, what, uh, been, what stood out for you, Mark? Well, I have got the benefit of having read his book. So again, I encourage everybody to get it. I mean, talk about results, you know, 20 to 30% at, here at our company, at CareMedics, we're, we're right in the middle of this. And that's why I'm so excited about this episode getting out to everybody, because it is such a timely topic for employers. 20 to 30% savings is pretty dramatic. But it's, you know, I think what he's described is, and again, he pulls this in the book, is that, you know, people think about purchasing insurance, but really what Matt and, and, and Meryl Steele and the work that he's done is about purchasing healthcare And that's just a new dynamic that we have to start thinking about that I think is critically important. And he talks about vertical integration as being bad for everybody. And, you know, he said he just wants a level playing field, which is really hard when you know, in our world where the PBM owns the pharmacy network and the pharmacy, you know, they all own every step of the way. And so you have no choice. This is, I know there's a phrase of the payviders, hospital systems that are now owning more and more of the uh, vertical stack of of all the providers as well as being the, the, the health system on top of it and the, the insurance. So I think there's things that need to be done. He talks about DPC, which stands for direct primary care. You know i love the whole you know approach of of helping patients get started earlier on the drug side transparent pbms it's you know it's their time you know we're, i'm in washington and legislation on pbms is just coming out of committees and so i think there'll be more disclosure requirements and everything else and i think as you know you you and i both you know work on the manufacturer side so but as example of the crohn's example is another indication of where people would people would be blaming the drug company for the for the cost of that drug when in fact they found it for 20 percent of what the hospital systems were going to pay for and i think that that's contributed in large part to his cfo's awareness of drug costs going from four percent to twenty percent well you know let's let's eliminate the markups let's eliminate the rebates it's really not gone up and these are really obviously life-changing drugs that are available and making a huge difference. So, those are a few of the lessons that I that I I think we we walked away from our time with Matt.
0: Good. Well, I was struck by how foundational this is for so many small and medium-sized employers. This is the the difference between profitability or not, the ability to, you know, stay in business even and and continue to offer benefits to your employees and so just how hard-pressed they have been by all the changes that have occurred in the healthcare system and financing system we have i was disappointed to hear about the all the profit taking you know along the way and how much is taken out in the middle that's an unfortunate part of our healthcare system i am inspired like you by the direct primary care model the transparency the chopping around you know i think we're all big believers in those things and i like that when the patient follows that approach, they can get the care at low or no cost to them. So I think all those things are great. I'm glad to see the success that they're having. I do think that this could be you know, generalized to lots of places, and it could be sustained for quite a while. It may not you know, be the final solution, but I think it's a powerful solution. And, and as you know, I do worry about, and I know Matt downplayed it, but I do worry about more and more purchasers and payers jumping on the copay accumulator and maximizer and PAP trains, the programs aren't intended for that. And and I think they're an important service to patients that really need them. And I worry that they'll be put at risk, you know, by these kinds of actions. But, but, you know, we, we need to figure that out for another podcast episode, Mark.
1: Oh yeah. (laughs) Which we do. And we have more, and that's a great time to transition. We have an exciting um, set of podcasts coming out this fall some really timely topics. And, you know, again, we're thrilled. We're, we're thrilled, We've thrilled with a response from the audience. We encourage you all to our listeners. If you have other ideas or suggestions, send it to comments at prescriptionforbetteraccess.com. And please keep tuning in, subscribe, press subscribe. My kids keep wanting me to tell you to give us the five stars because that helps our ratings. But our uh, listeners are going up and uh, we're excited about what we have coming up this fall. And thank you, Scott. And thank you for everybody for joining us as we continue to try to, you know, really make a difference and improve uh, patient access. And that's something that we're on this journey together, and we have to continue to do, uh, to uh, continue our our efforts to move this forward. So with that, thank you. Thank you again, Matt. Scott, thank you. And I hope you get your uh, electricity back soon.
0: Yeah, thanks, Mark. Thanks, Matt. We really appreciate it.
1: All right. Bye, everybody. Join co hosts Mark
0: Hansen and Dr. Scott Howell as they launch the Prescription for Better Access podcast. The podcast will be available on Spotify, Apple, Google, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to email Mark and Scott at comments at prescriptionforbetteraccess.com.
1: Thank you.